Welcome to Pod Clubhouse Press Pass. We are taking you behind the scenes and covering festivals, cons, and live events. We're continuing our coverage of season 10 of the ATX TV Festival with day two. And we have a variety of panels we're going to talk to you about today. We did not visit every panel, but we visited three or four. And <laughs> the first one was HBO, let's see, HBO Max, because there's a distinction, a Max original called Hacks. I am going to read you guys the IMDb summary because I just think it's kind of funny. It says, explores a dark mentorship that forms between Deborah Vance, a legendary Las Vegas comedian, and an entitled outcast 25-year-old. That really sets the stage, although I don't think it captures any of the humor or heart that is in Hacks the series. Who was on the panel today? Who was on the panel today? We had multiple producers, uh, Lucia Aniello, Jen Statsky, and Paul Downs. They're all co-creators, co-showrunners, executive producers, and writers. Lucia also directs several episodes. We also had cast members... Hannah Einbinder, who who is one of the main characters, Ava, and Carl Clemens Hopkins and Caitlin Olson, also in attendance. We watched a couple episodes of this before watching the panel to get a flavor of what the show was about. One of the major plot points that happens right away in the first 15 seconds of the show that I thought was very now was what happens when one of these behind the camera people gets canceled which is what happened to the Ava character. She made a joke on Twitter that blew her up from her Hollywood job. And now she's got to figure out how to how to make a living after that. And on the flip side, Deborah Vance, played by Jean Smart, is a, a fantastic, legendary Las Vegas comedian who has been working 100 shows a year and is starting to get the hook a little bit. I mean, if she worked 100 nights... Uh, oh, year. Friday and Saturday night are the nights she works. Yeah, I would say Friday and Saturday <laughs> night is like pretty key. Um, but yeah, so Ava is brought in essentially to freshen her jokes up. And the two of them have the same kind of biting, edgy, in your face comedy that, you know, they start to speak the same language. I really enjoyed the series. And I want to talk a little bit about what the panelists were trying to highlight for us. When they were being asked, how would you describe the show? I thought it was really fascinating that they highlighted the intergenerational relationship between women. Because most of the time when we see this, Paul, it's between a mom and a daughter. If you're going to see anyone with like an older person and a younger person, it's, they're going to be related to each other. Well, if they're women, yes. You've seen older man mentor, younger man mentee a thousand times. So fresh. Same trope, but Yes. Paul Downs pointed out that this was also like really supposed to hit on this idea that people on the fringes, whether they be women, whether they be gay, whatever their walk of life, they have to work so much harder in the arts to get ahead. I would add that when we say statements like on the fringes, we're saying their words. 
Yeah, this is totally Paul, what Paul said. Exactly. Paul Downs, not Paul You. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, I was like, okay, all right, this is interesting. They threw out other words like it's a tromedy, is, you know, it's a rom-com. Uh, they were even teasing, saying maybe it's a little erotic thriller, which is pretty funny. They really had a lot of different ways to describe it. And from the couple of episodes that we saw, I mean, we were drawn in. I want to know what's going to happen in the rest of the season. So, it was really good to have a little bit of insight from the different actors I appreciated that Hannah Einbender, who plays Ava, I didn't realize, first of all, that she is the daughter of Lorraine Newman from Saturday Night Saturday Night Live. I didn't know that either. I thought that was super cool. And I was like, wow, okay. But then as soon as she, like, I was really looking at her, I was like, I totally see Lorraine in her. Like, this is so funny. She was describing Ava as more like glass, like still strong, but has that fragility versus Deborah, who is like strong, but like iron. And it was astute, I think, on her part to see how much like Ava needed this like coddling almost. She, she was so worried about doing things very PC and very, you know, worried about doing everything very perfectly, I guess I want to say. Like when she's she's doing errands and stuff for Deborah, and she just keeps like checking back in and checking back in. Now, let me just say, Deborah is someone who knows what she wants and she's only going to take it like she wants. The soda fountain in her kitchen, shut up, Paul. If I could have that, oh my God, would I freaking love that? I love a fountain soda over like all others. To, to paint the picture for you, if you haven't seen it, she lives in a mansion. I mean, a legit, like, castle-style, like, Daddy Warbucks kind of mansion. All the trimmings that you might expect of that sort of thing. But then in her kitchen, she's got, like, a pizza parlor uh, <laughs> fountain, soda fountain. With even the red cups, like, you could get at, like, at, like Chuck E. Cheese or Pizza yeah, Hut. Like, like I Shakey's love Pizza. Them. Yes, yeah. with the straw dispenser and everything. I was like, I want this exact thing in my house we have a straw dispenser but man i am i'm really jonesing to have the rest of it now you know you can pick out a gift for me in the future buy me that soda fountain although they spoke about the co2 replacement scene oh my god you guys there's these moments that are so calculated in their humor they're so long they can't help but be funny and gene smart just handles it like a pro there's something about her character that reminded me of like a modern version of the Jane Lynch character from Mrs. Maisel. Yeah, absolutely. What that character might be if she existed now. Yeah. Except for this one part that both of those characters, you can assume, started from nothing and then clawed their way up to having a staff. You know, it's one thing to be wealthy. You see wealthy people on TV and entertainment tonight or whatever, but to be wealthy enough that you have a staff, yep. that's a different ball game, yeah. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. And, and that's what she has, but she replaces her own CO2. She doesn't call anyone over right. to do that. So she's got that like hands-on, you know, still approach to life, which I think makes her more endearing because, uh, you know, she doesn't have that, like you said, silver spoon in her mouth kind of feel like she works and claws. There's a beautiful scene between between her and Ava, where she just says, like, it never gets easier. Like, you work harder and harder and harder, and it never gets easier. It only gets harder. 
And, and, you know, it's also a good moment to speak to um, aging as a woman, both in Hollywood, not, and how, you know, she's just, it's so easy to put her out to pasture and make a joke of her. You know, when they, there's a scene where the casino owner puts her head on like a lobster as like an advertisement for the all you can eat buffet. And it becomes like a joke and it's so horrible, you know, but this is the type of things that happen to aging performers. You know, they start to have to be humiliated in this way. The ad has a, a title, but then underneath it doesn't say something about being crabby. Or yeah, something like yeah. That. But it's yeah. got the picture of her face, and it says "crab" underneath it. Yeah, and yeah. it was bad. Yeah. It was bad. But I, you know, there are some of the um, supporting characters that were also part of the panel, like Caitlin Olson. She plays DJ, which is um, hilariously stands for Deborah Junior, which I love. Again, that's one of those like men always name their kids Junior, and with the exception of Lorelai Gilmore, I know very few people who name their daughter their same name uh I, i've always since gilmore girls paul i've always regretted not naming one of our girls caroline i don't know why i didn't i think it would have been beautiful <laughs> this is a funny character because she's an adult child who lives at the mansion apparently she seems to come and go a little bit but yeah i mean i we don't know everything about her but i loved it caitlin olsen on the panel she spoke a lot about designing women which was a great ad to remind everyone where Jean Smart came from and how we all know her. I really forgot how much the shows back then, especially, but even now, really, were all male-led. And the idea that it was all female cast, with the exception of their admin being a guy, what a good reminder of, you know, it's it's been a long road to get to the point where we don't maybe notice that it's two female leads. That was groundbreaking back then to have, you know, Dixie Carter and everybody leading the, the pack. So the casting for Gene Smart was first thing they said. That was an easy casting. But for Hannah, they saw over 400 people and Hannah had actually never acted before. Which is interesting that she gets this this lead against someone who's so established. But they said that of all the actresses that came in, she was the only one that embodied what they wanted from this character based on a couple of offhand things that she did during her tryout, which like taking a hit off a vape pen <laughs> after, after delivering a joke from the script, but the vape pen wasn't in the script. That's so funny. Stuff like that. Yeah. I loved also that we talked with Lucia, who is not only the a main director, but she was also a writer and the creator. And they, they spoke a lot about how it was easier to be the director, understanding the characters coming from the creative standpoint, because she had actually made these characters what they were. And she could easily understand, you know, what needed to stay in the scene and what could go. And, you know, that's something that we don't talk very much about in a lot of our shows when we're reviewing is, you know, sometimes when, you know, like currently on Handmaid's Tale, when you have Elizabeth Moss, who is both the star, the director on many of these uh, the past season episodes, and also an executive producer. And when you're having to wear all those hats, how does that affect the process? So I appreciated that they gave her extra time to be able to talk about that and, and you know, how it changes things. Well, and how important they all felt that having the kind of voices that they had as creators influencing this show as opposed to some of the more traditional male-led writing rooms and stuff that that you might get you may you may have found a show with women leads but you still would have found men in the writing room right exactly exactly 
if you guys do decide to check out Hacks, it's over on HBO Max. And uh, another Gilmore Girls reference, Rose Abadou plays uh, Josefina, who is the, the housekeeper maid. And a little shout out to Gypsy. I was so happy to see her. I was like, man, I totally feel like she got that because of a year in the life when she plays the maid. I love that so much. So I thought this was a great one and something to definitely check out. The entire season one can be over, can be found and you can just binge watch it away. What was next for us, Caroline? Another panel we checked out was Housebroken, and that one has been making the rounds. I've seen that on a couple different panels recently. Uh, We got a chance to do the Fox Summer Tour, and for that press pass, we got an opportunity to sit in on a panel with Clea Duvall and Lisa Kudrow and the creators. Okay, the panel featured uh, all the creators, um, including Clea Duvall, who you know probably primarily as an actress, I know her from like Carnival several years ago and she had a guest starring on Heroes and just she was she's been around a long time. And there were also let's see. Um, Lisa Kudrow was on there as well as Jason Manzucos. Uh, Jennifer Crittenden and Gabrielle Allen were also co-creators. Uh, Nat Faxon was on there as well. And they explained how they came up with the idea. That was a funny origin story for that one. Yeah, and it and it exposed <laughs> sort of a difference, I think, between cat owners and dog owners that, that hasn't been put so well into words before. It was funny. Clea Duvall was just talking about how she has this relationship with her cat that she feels very um, sensitive about, essentially, that she feels like her cat is forever dissatisfied and never she's never meeting the cat's needs and she just wishes she could go to therapy with her cat and finally get to know her cat well enough to be able to meet her needs. And the whole thing was like, Man, I never think that about dogs. No. <laughs> I was just like, man, I just think my dogs are happy all the time. They always seem to be smiling and like just happy go lucky. And I was like, man, cat ownership is rough if you have to be like sitting around worrying about that. <laughs> they went around the room and they also explained how some of the actors got into character or chose their voice for their characters. And a lot of them admitted to channeling their own pets. That was very funny. Um, Sam Richardson, who plays Chico, was like uh, completely called out because apparently he makes some really amazing cat sounds and he just got so embarrassed. He was like, I am never embarrassed and I am like completely embarrassed right now. Like he could barely get out any sounds. They were just like polite clapping. I was like, oh, poor guy. Eventually he did make some some quality cat He tried. Sounds, yeah. it, was, but, it was a very on yeah. the spot kind of moment. But in the, in the moment when they put him on the spot, he couldn't produce cat sounds. It had to be more organic <laughs> than that. It was so embarrassing. I was like, ay, ay, ay. They also showed the pilot for those that hadn't seen it yet. Which you can see now over on Hulu. It's already up and running for season one. So you can check it out. The premise, for those of you who did not catch it, is a dog named Honey who runs group therapy sessions to help neighborhood animals manage the neuroses brought on by their owners and each other. So it's a funny dynamic between all of them. I mean, Nibbles the hamster, <laughs> that was very funny, like eating <laughs> eating the other hamster. I was like, oh my God, that is like extreme. And Sheldon the turtle is my favorite. Yeah. Some of this stuff happens in the first few minutes of the show. So one of the hamsters or no, the hamster, their problem is, is that they're traumatized by having lost their partner hamster and it's revealed that they killed them by eating their face off. And that came from one of the creator's kids, hamsters, did that exact thing and called one of the other creators and was like, I don't know what to do. I'm just watching this happen. <laughs> and that is super wicked fed into that character. Yeah, it was it was 
pretty gruesome there. So all in all, I mean, I think that it was great to see these different these different actors and explain how they handled COVID and the different protocols and how they would have to do the voiceover work separated from one another. And, you know, it all sounded very challenging, especially because the show in itself is supposed to be them sitting around in a circle and having this like, group therapy sessions, but they're actually in these little booths and lots of times they can't see anybody else. And how difficult to get the dynamic of we're all sitting together in a circle and really not have nobody to work off of. It was Nat Faxon and Lisa Kudrow's characters who lived together in what they called a forced marriage or arranged arranged marriage. marriage. Because Big Cookie had passed away. So they brought Chief in to be her companion. But that was like an arranged marriage, they said. So that's a funny way to think about it. But since they needed to play off each other all the time, they got to work kind of together, right. but they in were isolated booths, booths similar, yeah. with with a see-through panel between them, yeah. Uh, otherwise known as glass. Right, right. Thanks to COVID, all the other actors had to work in isolation, which was a theme that we had seen in other panels today. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, all in all, I mean, do you feel like, do you have a feel for this one? Are you recommending it to people? You love animated television shows. Did you feel like this is one that you will touch back on or? This is one I will keep an eye on. Having watched the pilot, this has some of the same characteristics that I associate with other nighttime animated shows like The Simpsons, like Family Guy, like American Dad, where they have this idea that is funny But producing it and then finding the way that it resonates with the audience can take a season before they hit their stride and they start to make more jokes that hit more often. When they were describing their process, it sounded a little like the creators perhaps, and I might be totally wrong, but perhaps had not had a lot of animation in their backgrounds previously so yes they were refining jokes and stuff like that but it sounded like they were taking longer to produce than say the simpson staff would well but i think that the trick of that was that you know they were asking one of the the moderator was asking can they improv lines and they were trying to describe the challenges of like well when stuff is animated and things are in place it's difficult to do those rewrites because it's expensive and costs time to redo their facial features or even just subtle nuances so i appreciated that that like it did seem like a huge learning curve and I think especially when you're doing comedy and you have comedians there and they want to try lines in different ways I mean how complicated is that to then have this maybe partially animated character or maybe you're even a couple weeks in and they're done with that scene but there was a better way to say the line you know you have to like go back and do that work and that sounded like a huge challenge and it sounded like one that was new to them but like I said if you give it If the audience hangs in and the channel hangs in and they get that second season, I think those problems will go away and you'll start to get more of those hits the first time. So I'm I'm saying keep an eye on it (laughs) for me. Moving on, our next panel was the one that meant the most of us today. It was the Messy Middle panel. By Messy Middle, that may be a very misleading or confusing title to give this panel. What they mean is if you were to look at a spectrum of roles that a person with disabilities can hold in a production, somewhere between completely inconsequential to the lead, which is the only places where 
uh, people with disabilities seem to inhabit whenever they're on screen. Right. It's either like the show is 100% about them or you hardly notice them and they often don't have any role. Then this panel was about normalizing the idea of of employing people with disabilities for all roles, whether it's behind the camera or in front of the camera, even if they aren't the point of the show. They are a part of the population, so they should be a part of the shows just organically. And that that middle, if you think of that spectrum I described, that's what they're talking about, is the middle between those two far ends. So who made up the panel today? We had an actor named Steve Way, who was from a show called Rami. We had an actress named Sophia Cheyenne from a show called Loudermilk. We had a, an actor named Ryan Haddad from a show called The Politician. A writer and producer named Catherine Beatty from NCIS New Orleans and an actress named Kayla Cromer from a show called Everything is Gonna Be Okay. This one was also moderated by a journalist with disabilities named Kristen Lopez. I want to say right off the bat that I really enjoyed Kristen Lopez as the moderator. You and I have been watching a bunch of different panels from all over different festivals and whatnot. And boy, have we (laughs) run the gamut of ones where we're like, why are they still talking? Or like this question makes no sense or they can't spit it out. I thought Kristen did a fantastic job and really should be on more panels. Well, they covered a lot of ground. And she kept the panel moving and everything seemed to be on point, what they were talking about. Yes, I agree with you. It was tight, right? It was a tight panel. Like you didn't feel like there was a lot of wasted time. And when, you know, people spoke, they had something to say, which, man, I cannot say that for every panel. Sometimes people speak and you're all like, they didn't ever even answer the question. I have been a part of those as press before. And yes, it is. Like, why are we here? What is, what are we? T- what, yeah, well, because they feel like they need to hold back on things and they don't want to give their full opinion or they don't want to give a spoiler or whatever. And this was not the case with this panel. They 100% told their real life experiences. They did not hold back. They did not be like, oh, this would be uncouth for me to like expose a situation like, no, 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 no. They told the issues that were going on in the industry for people with disabilities and they did not hold back. The big part of the message here is that there is so much more ground to cover in this area than people recognize. And it is similar to another journey that was already in process in terms of people of color doing the same stuff that they're talking about, which is being on camera, being behind the camera in not just the flashy roles, but whatever roles come up. This population is miles behind them. And to put it in perspective, you know, um, people with disabilities make up 25% of the population. That is a huge number when you consider how many are on the screen and, and what we're, when we, when we represent a high school or when we represent people in a crowd or just extras in general, I mean, that number is not represented at all, you know, and we're talking about that messy middle where maybe they're not the lead person, but they're also not like a forgotten person, but just that middle ground, you know, where you have a friend next door or whatever. And the person plays a role but they're actually having representation accurate to our population. And they did talk about certain more dicey topics like they themselves want opportunities. And then there were other ideas of, well, what about able-bodied actors 
playing those roles. Well, that was fascinating. So the one actress, it was Kayla, she was talking about how she has disabilities and she typically plays what we would view as an audience member as a typical developing person, right? She is someone with disabilities doing that, but she doesn't get the same kind of recognition as the actors who are typical developing people who play someone with disabilities, that those are like automatic Oscar contenders. Whereas she's doing the same exact thing. She's playing basically, you know, a challenging role for her own self and no one even recognizes it. Like she doesn't get any applause for that. And that was like, wow, that is a really good point. There was other parts having to do with accessibility. I think especially about the award shows, they were really honing in on that. Oh, they had a lot to say about accessibility. I mean, Caroline and I, if you listen to any of our regular podcasts, then you are probably aware of the journey we've had with our children and their various disabilities. But we haven't probably gone into very much detail about the adherence even governmental bodies have to ADA and uh, special needs access and that kind of stuff and how not great it is in even those bodies that are- Who made the law. Yeah, that are generally (laughs) associated with lawmaking in general. Right. And so when you bring in businesses like the Hollywood Machine or these other bodies like the Hollywood Foreign Press was the one that they were taking particular aim at, they're nowhere close in general, or they overshoot the mark because they don't ask anybody about it. Yeah. So one of the things that was really interesting is they were talking about how they brought in a ramp and and an interpreter for only one segment of one of the award shows and how ridiculous that was. That was like, just for this one segment, we're going to offer interpreters and we're going to offer a ramp, you know, just in case the nominee who happens to have a disability, you know, actually wins. And the ridiculous portion of that is, ADA requirement says you should have that all the time. A hundred percent of the time, it should be accessible to everyone all the time. Not just if they were the winner, not just if they were the nominee, but all the time you should have that accessibility. And they were talking about how there was a tweet after the award show saying, well, while everyone is applauding the fact that they had a ramp, do you all recognize that they're actually admitting that they've been illegally handling this award show for 31 years and not following ADA. And it was just like, whoa. I mean, even other panelists were like, this is blowing my own mind, you know, to have realized that in holding them up and being so proud of themselves, they have to admit like, but you've ignored it for decades and just try to act like you're you're doing the right thing now. And they all had stories uh, that were all unique and interesting. Ryan's story, I thought was really impactful to me because you and I were talking a lot about in Handmaids recently, and this wasn't disability related, but it was this idea of advocacy and the idea of, you know, fighting for your individual needs and asking for what you need as an individual versus like, are you fighting the good fight for like the larger body of people? He explained how he has cerebral palsy. He uses a walker, but he could get up the stairs with just using someone's arm. The production that he was on put a hydraulic lift on his trailer. And he was like, well, while that was thoughtful on one hand, it was completely unnecessary in another. If they had just asked, if they had just said, what what can we do to make everything accessible to you? What are your list of things that would be helpful? 
that's all we need. And he made such a good point that like, and this is only the right things for me, only me. Don't go and make this same list for the next person who has disabilities. That is not going to be helpful. And that's something that you and I have run into. We have uh, one of our helpers is deaf and we have flown on the plane with her. And because it says she's deaf on her ticket, we have been met at the gate with someone with a wheelchair because that's what they think. Like, oh, okay, well, you have a disability. You must need a wheelchair. And it was like, it had nothing to do with it. She is able-bodied with the exception of being deaf. It was like, like, what are you doing? This was so odd. But that was his point is like, stop making these assumptions that one piece of accommodation works for all different people. That's a silly thing to think. There's a desire out there in these larger bodies that special needs is somehow this one size fits all solution. Which is so odd because we really don't think that way about the rest of the population. Or when we apply that word special to like our ourselves. If there's something special that I want that I know, it's very individual to me. But when we apply that to this population, it's like, get the wheelchair for the, for the deaf woman. Yeah. And know? it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, that, that does not apply. Catherine also, her story was kind Hor- of painful. Horrifying, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was painful. Her story is that as a writer, she at no point apparently felt strong enough or highly placed enough to make any kind of big deal about the needs, her, her needs or her accommodations that she would have found helpful, but she is wheelchair bound and has those kinds of, of needs that are, that are required for her. So where she could have used a hydraulic lift. Exactly. They didn't even consider that. And so at one point they had said, Hey, you know, is it okay if we put your trailer, this was six or seven years in you guys, is it okay if we put your trailer like over here? And she was like, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's not accessible to me anyway. She had never been able to go into her trailer even one time. I mean, that's so painful or that story where they're filming in the woods. Yeah. So it's oh at a certain God. point she, she has become a producer. So the idea of being on set has worked into her career, but they were shooting in the woods and she needed to be on set and no one had asked her and she hadn't said to anyone what needs to happen. So the only solution they could come up with was that someone physically had to carry her to and from the set location in the woods, which everyone else thought was acceptable and okay. When she put it in that one line, when she said, and for years afterwards, they would come up and be like, Hey, remember that day when we carried you around? And that was so awesome. And finally she found her voice to say, what would you think about being carried around your place of work all day? Like how embarrassing would that be? There's a whole like missing the point. Like, see, look, we did this for you. And it's like, I didn't want you to do that for me. I wanted you to make it so that I could do it for myself. Right. I mean, she gave voice to what a lot of people in the disability community experience and encounter every day in terms of well-intentioned people that come up with these asinine solutions that yes, they get you through the day. Yeah. I mean, it, it, like in theory, it problem solves, but it a hundred percent negates the humanity of the situation. The humiliating factors that yeah. go along with it, that there's, there, there's a person on the receiving end of your quote unquote solution yes. that then has to live with having been carried around all day. Right. 
It was it was a lot. It was a lot. I, I think that this panel was really important. I, I hope that they do more panels like this because, I mean, especially this group of panelists, they were so not shy in being so blunt about their stories, so open. I mean, again, we have seen so many panels where people play it close to the vest. They're like, well, you know, in the industry, there may be a problem. Like, you know, they keep it super vague because they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or whatever. This group was like, this is the set I was on. This is what happened. This is how I felt about it. And I wanted to stop. Wow. This is the kind of advocacy and blunt talk that needs to be told to the rest of the population. Like, I know you're trying to help. We don't want your help. We just want things to be on an even playing field. We will access it ourselves, but you have to be, I mean, for God's sake, just follow the law. You know, the final point that I think is worth bringing up about their panel goes back to the press covering media. You've seen this in other communities, you know, the idea of maybe, say, a woman journalist covering a show with a woman's lead and maybe woman's themes, if that's a thing, having a different take than a man critic or something like that. But applying that to a person with a disabled perspective, a disability disabled life's story than reviewing material concerning disabled people as opposed to able-bodied, able uh, reviewer reviewing the same material because their point was often that that topic, that subject matter is often regarded as sort of like for inspirational purposes only. Well, and like untouchable to criticism. Right. Like we're not going to say anything bad because it was a story about a blind man. So we're just going to applaud that even if it was crappy. And, you know, they were saying you're doing no one any good, you know, because then that's just going to perpetuate shitty productions about our population. And we're not interested in that. We want high quality productions. So if it's a shitty play or film or TV show, call it out for what it is. And what they were trying to say was that perhaps it's going to take someone with disabilities to have the ownership of being able to say, you know what, this is my population. I can say shit about them if I want to mm-hmm. and say whatever they want because they were they were feeling like the able-bodied population was playing with kid gloves. Like, well, we don't want to offend. So if there's anyone with a disability in it, we're just going to say how awesome they were. And if the topic is someone with a disability, we're just going to say the production was awesome. We don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And it was like, you're helping no no one. You're just getting a bunch of crappy productions produced. No one's getting honest and good feedback. So calling that out was something that I'm sure most people were like, I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. I'll look for it now. Well, and here's the trick of that. In our cancel culture, and this kind of goes back to Hacks, our first panel, can you say this person who happens to have a disability really sucked ass at this role. Can you say that? Because if you do, are you just looking at the end of a shotgun and someone's going to say, you are an asshole. You have no idea the challenges they have to overcome. You are horrible. Now, you and I encounter this in raising three kids with special needs because oftentimes, you know, we have the same standards of discipline, the same standards of manners, of, you know, doing chores, our washing machine and microwave, our braille, like there's no, nobody gets a free pass and nobody's getting a pat on the back because you do the bare minimum of what we expect as your parents. I feel like it was like, a call to keep the bar high. And it was tricky because I could see how someone from the outside of that, of our special needs world could be like, 
well, shit, why don't you like cut them a break? You know, like this is 10 times harder for Lauren to do the laundry than it is just for you to do it. And I'm like, yeah, but we have that much respect for her and for all of our kids that we say, no, you're capable and you're going to do it as much as you can do it. And we will make it accessible to you. We get that you need Braille. One of our kiddos is very, very small physically. She has a step stool to get up to the washing machine because I don't, it doesn't mean you don't do your work. And if they do a bad job, we say, hey, do that better. You can do it better than that. I feel like we can really appreciate this. I wonder if it's possible. I'm asking you, Paul, I guess. Do you think that an that an able-bodied person could make a criticism and not get really, really attacked? No, I won't even qualify that. Just no period. So I guess that's the, that's, I guess their point is that we have to have people within our own population speak up and give voice to this because you guys have kind of like the ability to say, no, I'm within this group. I can say this and I can be more critical. I don't know that that is a free pass. You know, I, it would be curious to know if, if someone just because they have a disability, can they be critical? Will our population allow that? Will that appear to be bullying or something or hate talk or something like that? I don't know. I think maybe one way to get there that this panel would completely agree with would be if there was just finally enough work for them all that there's such a flood of this material out there that finally some reviewer sticks up his hand and says, wait a second, this one sucked. Yeah, like some are good and some are bad. You're right. right. You're right. Because that's the other thing. If you only have five shows to review in a given year, you hesitate to say, you know, this population's shows were no good. You know, like that's hard to say because you don't want to marginalize anyone. You don't want to make anyone feel bad. But you're right. If there's hundreds of plays and shows and whatnot, well, of course, someone's going to expect some are good and some shit, you know, some suck. So it's like, it's one of those things where you're right. If you just have sheer volume, maybe there's a lot less pressure to act like everything is this precious little gift to everyone. You know, you can treat everyone more evenly. I hope we get there. Me too. I mean, they said, you know, progress is happening, but you know, it is a long road. Speaking of long road, we also sat in on the panel for a new show, which will certainly be a niche show for for fans called Ultra City Smiths. And when I say long road, I'm talking about a production for which they make 160 seconds of show a day. And that's considered fast. Well, this is stop motion animation, Paul, and that's just the way that works. And it does sound fast if you think about how they got to make it. If you listened to only the description from the creator, his name was Steve Conrad, and then listen to the actors talk about their character bios, and then listen to the city description of Ultra City and all the other stuff and didn't hear anything about the fact that it's stop motion, you'd think they're making the next like Chinatown or gritty police style, even like a noir style movie. So here's IMDb's summary. Ultra City Smiths follows the investigation into the mysterious disappearance of fictional metropolis megacity's most famous magnate by two intrepid detectives. Now, here's the part you need to know. It is stop animation baby dolls. And that's their words in the panel, which was like baby dolls. (laughs) 
what? <laughs> they showed some of the baby dolls in the panel. I don't know. They were pretty good puppets. You know, I didn't take them so much as like baby dolls. Exactly. I mean, when you use that phrase, a, a certain vision comes to mind. Well, ever since you showed me that video of that woman that buys the brats and like melts off the makeup and yeah. then repaints on different makeup to yeah. change their look. Now I know this is a thing. And this is, they described that a friend of the creator who was previously known for creating a show called Perpetual Grace Limited with basically this same cast and crew, someone from that art department, you know, he's a true artist in terms of found object art, I guess. And he had been collecting baby dolls from things like garage sales, yard sales, etc., getting them home, doing the same thing, changing their appearance, giving them things like mullets and <laughs> and beards and beer bellies, changing their whole look, but keeping that same weird kind of baby doll aesthetic that you know what's underneath, but then you see what's on top and it's just kind of messes with your, your mind. But yeah, it's a cool effect. And I mean, I think that they have a stacked cast. They have John C. Riley, Jimmy Simpson, Tom Waits is their narrator, B.B. Newer. Terry O'Quinn, I mean, Kristen Bell. There's there's a lot of people in here that you would recognize. For sure. You'll know their voices. It sounded like, like a Disney-esque slate of guest stars that maybe come in and do an episode or two, or maybe even just a voice or two. And they loved to do it. They admitted that there wasn't really enough budget to pay the actors very well after needing to hire 20 animators and yeah, make this whole... Eight seconds a day. Yeah. Or eight seconds per animator per day. And the creator Oof. even admitted just the little things that you take for granted in a live production, such as pointing the camera at the sky because you want a picture of a cloud. That's fine. But in their world, you have to make the sky and you have to make the cloud and then you have to <laughs> animate it. Right, right. I mean, it definitely seemed like a labor of love. I mean, there were some portions that Steve Conrad was talking about that he was talking about very earnestly that that I know you as an artist and somebody who really enjoys watching things like this and, and appreciative of the all the art that goes into it. When he was speaking so earnestly about like these two dolls making love, <laughs> it really, he used the word making love. And I was like, wow, like this is intense. Like I can't, they didn't show any clips. So we didn't have an opportunity to see what it looked like in action they showed a doll and they showed some of the the backdrop of the city but like we didn't really get to see it in action so we can't exactly review what this is going to be like except to say that it is thought-provoking and certainly going to be a labor of love for these people to give you an idea they said that they were greenlit in september they're going to have shows ready in july to me that would be freaking fast for just a you know shot on video kind of show we've been waiting two years for like the next season of Maisel right right well this is I mean there's a lot of tricks to this like I wonder how it works out when your animators can be in different places and how all the stop action movement is being done you know if you don't have to have hundreds of people on set what does that mean for for your production time with COVID and all the protocols and everything so it will be fascinating I mean certainly there's things that are coming out right now that don't rely on a lot of people being in one place you know Maisel is 
is a thing that's in a city as would be has a crowd always because she's you know stand up so it's hard to to get that out there with mm-hmm. covid but you know this would be interesting but it's just so laborious either way this sounds like a watch for me the animation is like intriguing but then when you when you say for instance for for contrast listening to the backgrounds of the animal characters for housebroken they were like a sentence they were like this is a cat who lives with other cats this is a dog who lives with other dogs or whatever was the setup but here when they talked to jimmy simpson he went on for like two minutes yeah they had developed a character backstory yes all of the motivations and the history of this character that you might not associate with animated productions well the hope is that it comes across right i mean and you said that at the beginning of this panel the hope is that we've seen stop motion animation where you do get some emotion from those characters and some where you're like, what is this plastic doll face doing? <laughs> and so there's a lot of of like crossed fingers that that you know this seems like a great group of people, and it seems like people who really love what they're doing. But will the emotion and all this character development come through without humans being on the on the screen? There was no video for us. I will tell yeah. you guys. So that's something to keep on your watch list. That one again was called Ultra City Smiths, and hopefully, like we said, I mean it's supposed to be coming out. This summer? Yeah, they said July. So here's hoping. All right. So that covers our second day of ATX coverage, season 10. We'll be back again tomorrow. Thanks so much. This is Caroline. This is Paul. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.